All right, thank you, praise team, for the worship. Yeah, so I'm having a little bit of bronchitis issues, so I'm going to try to reserve and save my voice a little bit, so I may not be as animated as normal. Um, but let's go to the text. We're going to continue in our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we, of course, last week looked at the end of chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 to 16. First uh, Corinthians 7. Now, this is a chapter that if you've been to, I don't know if you've been, but I've been to eight straight Saturdays of weddings. <laughs> so uh, it's appropriate. We're going to be dealing with um, Paul's address on marriage and some of those things. And of course, this is leading up to the famous chapter of love, First Corinthians 12 or 10 <laughs> to 12, right? Anyways, we'll get there. Let's look at Paul's teaching on marriage today in verses 1 to 16. 1 Corinthians 7, I'll read in my Bible, you read in yours, or follow along in yours. That's what the Word of God reads. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. So you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, um, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under any bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. This is the word of God. Uh, a lot of complexities and layers to the text today. Um, it's broken down pretty easily for us by Paul himself. So it's not going to be that, that uh, difficult for us to kind of navigate. But there are a lot of nuances in the text that we're going to have to address. So let's begin. I want to pray before we start. And as we do each week, we're going to pray for an unreached people group. In our unreached people group of the day, they come from Malaysia. They are known as the Balinese. We're praying for them. There's about 6,000 of these people, only 6,000, and none are Christian. They're all Hindus. And so we like to pray for this community, that they would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Also in Europe, currently, we are dealing with uh, massive riots and protests in regards to certain COVID restrictions and other restrictions in terms of travel and etc., people are frustrated, right? Um, and so, obviously, safety is an issue right now. 
So let's pray together for that, um, that the church would, as Paul writes, um, that we are, God is for peace. And so we'd like to pray for that in Europe right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the day we have. We thank you for the brothers and sisters that gather here today to worship, to gather in, uh, as the body of Christ, to give, bring glory to your name, and to na- make your name renowned. And so, Father, we pray uh, for the Balinese of Malaysia. And we pray for their faith, uh, or we pray for faith to be present in this community, that um, believers would, uh, or people would come to believe, and then those believers would begin to establish churches and communities of faith. Uh, and hopefully, Lord Father, all 6,000 of these people uh, would one day hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We also pray, Lord Father, for what's happening in Europe in terms of the riots and protests. I know it's been a frustrating two, two and a half years, and um, COVID has obviously uh, had an incredible strain on our lives. And so, Father, although uh, there's disagreements and division, uh, different sides and opinions, uh, political opinions at that, that God, we don't resort to violence or um, destruction, but rather we would seek a resolution uh, through peaceful means. And so we pray for uh, the safety of those in Europe right now, and uh, the churches that are open today to worship, that hopefully they would be a beacon of that message of peace. All this we pray in your name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled On the Matter of Marriage. And so Paul addresses like just a bunch of things, like a bunch of people who are married, unmarried, married to believers, married to unbelievers, etc. And we're going to look at some of those things today, okay? So chapter 7 is quite unique, actually, in the New Testament. It's a text, uh, it's, it's a text that's just quite unique among all of Paul's epistles, uh, what we call the Pauline epistles. The features of this text are vastly different from that of the previous six chapters we've read. Um, and you can just tell in the language that it's very different. If you just read it a little bit carefully, you can note uh, some differences in the language that Paul uses. Now, one main thing you can clearly notice if you're an avid New Testament reader is the softer tone of his authority. Did you catch that? Right? Or one might even argue that there is a lack of authority in the text in terms of his uh, voicing of argumentation. He uses terms like this, and we don't see this anywhere else in 1 Corinthians or in like majority of his letters in the New Testament. He uses words and phrases such as this. But this I say in a way of concession, not command. It's like, I recommend this, but I don't command you, right? Um, For it is better that you do this. For I wish that you do this, right? This is not the language of the Apostle Paul that we're familiar with. Paul's language is noticeably softer here and lacking that sort of typical Pauline punch in his delivery. He also shifts his address from men to women seamlessly. He addresses men, he addresses women. He doesn't do this in other other chapters of 1 Corinthians, let alone other epistles. And something quite unique in all of the New Testament is found in this chapter. One other thing you will note is that he is teaching on marriage, right? And addressing specific matters in regards to marriage. But without much adherence or reference to any sort of biblical or theological source. He usually does that, right? We've observed. One could argue that much of this section of, Paul, of this letter is Pauline opinion drawn from his biblical and theological understanding. But it doesn't have the same, let's call firmness, that his other teachings have had thus far. So what does this mean for us? And how then are we to receive this text? This is why uh, modern scholars will divide on the authority of Paul's letters. So some people have note, like if you talk about like liberal sort of scholars today, 
they will argue, we need to get rid of Paul's opinions from the Bible. Right? We need to listen to his teachings in regards to the authority of, of God's word. But there's too much of Paul's opinions and we need to like just remove it all. Right? Um, and filter it out. And so this is uh, problematic to the liberal scholars. Of course, the conservative scholars, we look at this as, of course, divine providence. And uh, Paul is teaching on the basis of biblical authority, even, to, even though he doesn't make an explicit reference to it. So, uh, this is really important for us to understand. And so, Paul is clearly addressing and answering more specifically a matter that the Corinthians brought up to him in a letter that they had previously sent to him. Remember, we talked about this. Paul had sent an initial first letter. The Corinthians responded with another letter. And then Paul is writing this letter in response to that letter. Right? So that's sort of how the chronological history, history of 1 Corinthians works. This is sort of the accepted um, reality. Uh, there may have been other letters, right? People do talk about that. But we've only seen reference to a letter that the Corinthians had written to him and a letter that he had previously written to the Corinthians, right? Um, and so just keep that in mind. The letter likely asked Paul about... Uh, isn't it better that a man does not touch a woman? Of course, not like literally just touch. We're talking like sexual touching, right? Like so sex, right? And clearly had some follow-up inquiries on marital matters within the church. There were the unmarried in sexual relations with others, the unmarried virgins, the widowed, the married, and the married with unbelieving partners. What do we do with all these people? Paul handles and deals with these matters in today's text. So we'll take a look. So remember a couple things, okay? The Corinthians are super, super, the Corinthian church is super concerned with being super spiritual, right? So they are self-righteous folks who want to, like, you know, achieve some sort of higher spiritual status through what we talked about last week, like ascetic practices, right? They want to devote themselves and commit themselves to these, you know, these actions that they view as, like, highly spiritual so that they could boast about their high spirituality. And one of those things was abstinence. So that's what Paul is addressing today. Let's take a look at the text. Verse 1. This is the main concern of the text, okay? Paul addresses the concern of this passage as presented to him by the Corinthians themselves. And it's in a letter they had sent to him prior. Paul has already taught the Corinthians, both in chapter 6 and chapter 5, and a likely initial first letter that he had written to him, to flee sexual immorality. We talked about this last week, right? But due to the nature of the Corinthian church and their desire for higher spirituality, what seems to have occurred is sort of like they've received the message, but they've taken it to an extreme that skews or deviates um, from what Paul was intending to teach, right? So it has an element of truth, their practice and their, and their uh, understanding, but it's not consistent and precise with what Paul had in mind. They taught and wrote to Paul, um, isn't it good for a man to not touch a woman? Their ascetic desires led them to this conclusion. So their desire for higher spirituality and higher spiritual practice uh, as a means to boast led them to this sort of conclusion. Oh, Paul, you said flee sexual morality. That means don't have sex ever. So that means if I don't have sex ever, I'm some sort of super Christian. Right? You can see how like they take something really simple and something very good and then they just like skew it into something that's like really highly ridiculously extreme. It's not too different from modern day heresies, right? Um, and so by abstaining from sex in any context, married or unmarried, 
they could achieve higher status with God. To this, Paul is responding in today's chapter. Verses 2 to 7. The duty within marriage. Now, there's only one person married here. So this is to you, okay? Um, have sex with your wife. Um, that's your, that's your takeaway for today, okay? <laughs> the main thrust of the passage is found in these very verses, 2 to 7. The same message Paul gives here is what is given across the board throughout the chapter. He first addresses the general group of those who are married, and to them he says, have sex, right? <laughs> yes, amen. Yes, thank you. He goes as far to say this, it is your duty to have sex with one another. It is your duty to your partner, as a partner, to do so as a married couple. They are, after all, one flesh. Neither the husband or wife have authority alone over their bodies, but it is a mutual authority for both, and both are to fulfill their duties in being a partner, and specifically here, a sexual partner to the other. This is what Paul has already stated in chapter 6, that sex itself is not a bad thing. It is, in fact, a good thing, designed by God to be practiced within the marital relationship. Verse 5 states to not deprive a partner of this good thing. Unless, unless, so here again, to our one person who is married, unless it is mutually agreed upon to do so for a period of time for the purpose of prayer. Now, I don't know about you, I don't know any married couple <laughs> in my life who have mutually agreed, let's abstain from sex for a period of time so we can pray. I don't know about anyone who's done that or maybe they just haven't vocalized it to me. Um, but if you want to be the first, like, you know, let me know. Um, or don't let me know, please. Verse 6 is interesting. Paul says this, this is not a command, but a prescription. It's a concession that I give to you. But here's the troubling thing in the Greek. This points to what? So this is where scholars divide. So some scholars will say this points to everything he said so far. This points to the very first thing he said. This points to the verse 7 or verse 5, what he said in verse 5. It could reference a lot of things, but a lot of, uh, going through a bunch of commentaries and scholars, um, it could reference a vast number of things Paul has uh, already stated. But if, um, in reference to the previous verse that we just read, right, in verse 5, we can follow the logical flow and indicate that Paul gives this certain advice to the Corinthians, right, not as a command to abstain from prayer, or from abstain mutually for purpose of prayer, but as a word of counsel in case they decide to do so. And so in these cases, it's permissible. The reason he would do this is because the Corinthians are saying, they have these married couples in the Corinthian church who are going, oh, husband, wife, we shouldn't have sex with each other because it's better to not have sex and then God will love us more and we'll be higher Christian level Christians and it's for our benefit, right? So let's mutually agree upon that and blah. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You can do that for a time period, but it's not... It's not healthy to do, like, to just live in abstinence for the purpose of self-righteousness, right? So he's trying to really specifically get at issues that have arisen in the Corinthian church. So I hope you're not taking this as a universal lesson. That's why I think his language is much softer and less, I guess, authoritative, if you will, um, only for that purpose. But it is authoritative, of course. It is the Word of God. Um, but it is, of course, dealing with 
very specific situations in the Corinthian church. He is more concerned, uh, Paul is more concerned, with the Corinthians taking abstinence too far, right, which they've done, and applying it to just a general, um, a general prescription for all Christians in all contexts, including married couples. And to that, Paul says no. Paul ends this section, verses 2 to 7, by stating that his preference is that all men, and when he says men, he means all people, would be celibate as he is. Celibate as he is. But he knows that this is, an, um, that this is, not, uh, this is a gift that not all people receive. And so he makes it clear two things. Okay, two things. Choosing celibacy or abstinence does not make you better than others, like other Christians. Although celibacy is a blessed gift from God. And Paul seems to have had it, right? So it's like this. Like when we look at our worship team, they're musically talented. God has gifted them. I don't know if you guys agree, but they're musically talented, right? God has gifted them with these skills. Would you look at them and go, oh, they're leading praise, so they must be better Christians than me? Absolutely not, right? I know these people. They're probably not better Christians than you, right? <laughs> they're all, like, are all on equal footing here. It doesn't make them better because they have that skill set. So in the same sense, celibacy is not to be used as a means to boast, which the Corinthians were doing, right? So they were claiming a gift that they did not have for the purpose of self-righteousness. And that was wrong in Paul's perspective. The second thing, nor is it worse to be married and in sexual relations within that marriage, as the scriptures clearly permit and promote. Both are acceptable lifestyles, but both serve the same purpose. And we're going to get to that at the end in the conclusion. But the purpose is to glorify God, right? So let me address, like, a, let me just make a quick personal note before we sort of get into the latter section of the text. Why would celibacy... Do you guys know anyone that's celibate? Like, has the gift of celibacy? Right? Like, you're probably reading Corinthians and you're going, why would... What kind of idiots would want to be celibate, right? Like, what's wrong with these people? Are they like... Right? Like, what's wrong with them, right? But today, we're such a hyper-sexualized, like, community, right? And, you know, sexuality and sensuality, these things are so prevalent... The option of celibacy is not something that I don't think anyone even considers. Right? Do I have this gifting? Do I not have this gifting? I've never met anyone who's been even praying for the gift of celibacy. Right? But the question is, Paul clearly has a high view on celibacy. Not a higher, but a high view. Why? Because he himself has the gift. Why today do you think this gift would be so important for Christians to seek after. Here's why. There's two communities today that I believe are quite an obstacle or Christianity has a difficult time preaching to. Right? I'm not saying they're the two most or the two major, but there are two communities that I personally interact with that I find is quite... It's not atheism. Atheism is... Anyone atheist here? No, right. Atheism is a joke, right? But, um... <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> It's Muslims, right? The religion of Islam and the LGBTQ plus community, right? Or let's just, uh, actually, I shouldn't, anyways, like homosexuals, right? People who practice homosexuality. Anyway, so why would it be important for us to seek this gift? 
You're telling a Muslim person, hey, Jesus died for you, and if you believe in him, you can have salvation and eternal life. Follow him. Follow Christ. Forget Muhammad. Forget all this stuff. The Quran is wrong. The Testament is correct. Follow Jesus, right? You know what happens to that person? They get kicked out of their community. They lose all their social contacts. Their parents, their family, their brothers and sisters want to kill them. They need to run away, live alone, and never, probably, ever find love in their life. While you get on a plane, go back home, meet the wife or husband of your you know, desires. You have a wealth of choice in the church. I know it doesn't always look like that, but you have a wealth of choice in the church. You can get married. You have the hope of being able to make that choice. That person does not. You are not an example to them. Then to the homosexual. Hey, you need to abstain from your homosexual practice. I know you have these desires and these passions, but you know, just like we ask you know, Christians to abstain from sexual sin, uh, other sexual sins like you know, pornography addiction or drug addiction or alcohol addiction or other things, you need to abstain from these things. So unfortunately, in your life with these desires in a fallen world, you need to not have romance in your life because you're homosexual. And then you run off and you find the wife and the husband of your dreams and you have a family and you raise kids and you live happily ever after. What does that look like to the homosexual community? What does that look like to the Islamic community? It seems unfair, doesn't it? This is why I think it's so important for more Christians to um, think and pray about this seriously. I don't take it lightly. I'm not saying the majority of us have to be celibate, and I'm not saying celibacy is the preferable choice or you know the priority or should be the thing you are seeking. But I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this is an acceptable lifestyle that could be the best means of projecting the gospel to the world. And we haven't even thought about it. I kind of blame Korean culture because we're you know every time you meet like your relatives, what's the first thing they ask you? Are you seeing anyone? Are you meeting anyone? When are you getting married? You're like 30s, and I'm in my 30s. They always ask me, oh, when are you getting married? Right? It's always on your mind. And if you don't, you're abnormal. In the church, it's not abnormal. Scripture has made it clear, right? So I think that's just a reason why I think it could be important for Christians to seek this gift. To the unmarried and the widowed, that's a lot of us, verses 8 to 9. Many have used verse 9 here as justification for reason uh, or reason for pursuit of marriage, especially among guys. Okay? This is not the desired understanding or outcome that Paul had in mind. After spending considerable time telling his audience to flee sexual immorality and knowing the sexual passions of the Corinthian church, why would he tell them, get married on the basis of if you can't keep it in your pants, just get married. Why would that be the reason to get married? Right? Um, people have used verse 9 as justification for, oh, like, you know, I'm just a really sexual person, so if I want sex, I should just get married. Right? No, that's not the Korean justification, or the Korean, the Christian justification for getting married. It's just not. Right? Maybe it is the Korean justification. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that makes no sense in context. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't flow with the text. In context, on the heels of verse 7, it is apparent that Paul is addressing specifically those who are seeking an ascetic life like Paul, but with the purpose of achieving some higher level of spirituality, those who are not gifted in celibacy or abstinence, but pretending like they are. To them and to the widows, he says, stay as you are. It is better, Lord willing, to stay as you are. But if you are not gifted in this, 
celibacy, then it is right that you find a partner. It is good, I should say, to find a partner because your sexual passions will drive you to sin. And we've seen that in chapter 5 and 6. So he's addressing, again, a very specific crowd of people, not all singles. And he's not saying that the purpose of marriage is to escape sexual sin. We know that isn't the case at all. But that those who are not gifted in celibacy are to seek a partner because that is their gifting to glorify God through and in marriage. <laughs> Simply put, you will not be looked upon favorably because you chose the life of celibacy. So rather, do as the Lord wills and has entrusted to you. Right? Verses 10 to 11. To the married believers. Okay? Married believers. It has been said through much historical research that one particular group Paul is addressing in this chapter is a group referred to as the eschatological women. These women were seeking sexual abstinence and even divorce from their Christian partners in light of their expected glorification with Christ. They reportedly believed that they themselves could and had already achieved some sense of bodily resurrection on earth, so they could not spoil their glorified bodies by offering it to men for sex, even their husbands. Again, a sign of extreme ascetic heretical practice, and unnecessary spiritual fervor with no biblical grounds. To them, Paul says this clearly here once again. Stay as you are. To those that have left um, their husbands already, you too stay as you are since you goofed, right? Unless, unless your husband is willing to take you back. So if you can reconcile with him, then go back to him. Otherwise, you stay the way you are, okay? Husbands, don't divorce your wives over this matter. <clears throat> See how Paul's argument works? He dresses the women, the men, the women, the men. It's really interesting. He never does this. You won't find this anywhere else. Finally, verses 12 to 16. To those married to unbelievers. This is the juicy part of the text, right? Those who are married to unbelievers. <laughs> if you're married but to unbelievers, um, Paul has a message for you. A reality of the early church is that converts to the Christian faith were already in um, marital relationships. They're already married, right? And it's not every case where both the husband and the wife came to faith. One or the other may have came to faith, right? This was problematic to them as they saw in their partner someone who wasn't sharing in their faith, in their values, and their beliefs. The commendable aspect of their solution, which is to divorce them, is that they desire to be equally yoked with someone who was Christian. That's the commendable part of that attitude, okay? Yet Paul says to them the same message. Stay as you are. Do not leave your partners. In the modern day, we tend to be lenient on the Christian who is seeking love and inevitably yokes themselves to the non-Christian. This is a whole other sermon for another day. But the Bible does not condone such pursuit in Christian marriage as it defies the purpose of biblical marriage itself. And of course, if you want to know what that purpose is, we'll address that in another sermon. Nonetheless, the semi-commendable attitude of the modern Christian is, I want to, this is what I hear all the time, I want to be in a relationship with them so I can bring them to church and they can hear the gospel and they can come to faith, right? That's like every single person who dates a non-Christian. That's their argument, right? 
I know someone and they got married and the mom was a Christian and the dad wasn't and then the dad became a Christian and here I am, right? Wrong. The ends do not justify the means in those cases. The Bible is clear. That is not how you pursue marriage. You are to set an example always. And I know she's hot. He's hot. She's nice. He's nice. All those things. And I know Christian guys are sometimes super unattractive. And Christian girls are always attractive, right? But, like, I know it's hard. But that is the biblical message. It's clear and clear cut. It's precise. The problem, they're the problem. They are also seeking, like the Corinthians, they as in the modern Christians are also seeking what? They're not seeking the faith of their partner. That's a lie. The priority of their heart is what? Their own romantic pleasure. That's your priority. If your concern was really their salvation, you could wait. You could wait. You could bring them to church as a friend. You could bring them, you can lead them into the faith as a friend. You could share the gospel as a friend. Why do you have to be dating them? When you say to me, well, if I'm not dating them, they won't come. Then they're not coming to church for Jesus. Right? That's wrong. You're lying to yourself because your romantic pleasure is likely your priority. But there, there, there is a difference between that, the modern community and the past. There's a difference between the matter of the Christians of the early church and those today. They are already married when they are called to the faith. Christians today who are doing this are not married. I have had people use this passage to me as justification for their relationship with a non-Christian. See, Paul says, stay with them. And every, every time I need to point out, you don't have a ring on your finger. And these people, they came to Christ after they were married. Right? You are a Christian. I think, right? So this is really important for us to um, really like digest this properly. So I've had people use this passage for justification for things like that. And of course, I need to point out that they're grossly misreading the text. Paul's teaching to this group, however, is clear and precise. Again, it hasn't changed. Like every other group prior, stay as you are. Stay in that relationship. But his position in regards to unbelieving partners is this. It's not ideal. Right? It is not ideal. But it is right to stay. In hopes of what? The sanctification of your partner. To be an example to them. Uh, if you've ever read um, Philemon, he talks about Philemon, um, and he has this like uh, servant who's like, run away, right? And he wants to send it back. And he talks about the master, the servant-master uh, relationship. And he says, we are to serve our masters, even if they're non-Christians, faithfully. Why? In the hopes that they would come to know Christ. For Paul, everything is Christ-centered and gospel-centered. The priority is not romantic pleasure or self-seeking pleasure or self-righteousness. It's none of those things. It's always about Jesus. So, he allows it for those purposes. It's not ideal, but it's right to stay in hopes of conversion because you're already married. It is allowed 
it is allowed, but it is not the situation that one is to pursue either. So to those of you saying, see Max, I can hope to lead them to Christ, right? Here's what Paul says to you. How do you know? How do you know whether you will save them or not? You don't, because you can't save them. Only God can. <laughs> Why gamble with your partner's salvation? And furthermore, with the kids you will raise with them. That's simply foolish. If you can stare at your non-Christian partner and say, I love you to the ends of the earth, to death do us part, blah, 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 but you're okay with the fact that they're going to hell in accordance with your belief, you are a liar. You are a liar. Right? Conclusion. The main sum up of Paul's argument can be noted as this. <laughs> Stay as you are. There is flexibility and permissibility, but certainly also a preference on Paul's end in regard to the Christian mar marital state. But the root of that preference is his urgency to share Christ in anticipation of his return. His eschatological expectation drives his life's ambitions, and it is a passion that burns greater than his passion for sex or for marriage. And in that heart is our lesson. Paul will later say in this letter, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That heart is demonstrated in today's passage. Whether you marry or stay single, do all to the glory of God. Is this the heart and motivation we have in all that we do? The question of the Corinthians is trivial, like many of our own, because their concern is selfish. Does my abstinence indicate greater spirituality? Isn't it better for us to not have sex? How can we avoid having sex, Paul? These are questions that come from a mind and heart that have been consumed by sex. Perhaps that is why you have members like those in chapter 6 who sought after prostitutes. We are more than this, brothers and sisters. We are friggin' children of God, right? Our questions in our walk need to shift from the trivial matters of earth to the urgent heavenly matters at hand. Being a faithful Christian is not demonstrated best through abstinence of one's passions. Okay? Hear me out clearly. It is not demonstrated best through abstinence of one's passions. But by this, the redirection of those passions to Jesus. So that all we do, all that we do, whatever it is, will be done to the glory of God. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. <laughs>